0: You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today I speak with Sharon Salzberg, one of America's leading meditation teachers. Sharon is a co-founder of the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts, and the author of many books, including The Kindness Handbook, as well as several Sounds True audio learning programs, including Faith, Trusting Your Own Deepest Experience, and Guided Meditations for Love and Wisdom. Today we speak with Sharon in a very warm conversation about some of the insights she has had in her nearly four decades of a life of practice. Sharon, thanks for joining us here at Insights at the Edge. Well, thank you, Tammy. That's the name of our show, Insights at the Edge. (laughs) And uh, my job is to find out um, what your current edge is.
1: (laughs) Does everyone laugh when you ask them that?
0: Um, no, not, no, no, not everybody. (laughs) Some people, some people have refused to admit that they have an edge. They don't have Uh one. They're beyond edges. Um, some people are like, why are you making me uncomfortable? You didn't tell me that was the object of this conversation. But I'm curious, just right to start off right with you, if, if you do feel that there's an edge for you, and what I mean by that is twofold one, sort of what you're working on professionally that's exciting for you. And then the second part, what maybe is, taking your interest and attention internally? So both.
1: Hmm. Well, externally, I think I've had you know, some amazing opportunities in uh, pretty recent times to be working with, to be teaching uh, whole different kinds of populations of people. I did a program through the Garrison Institute for a number of years, which uh, was offering trainings in meditation and yoga to domestic violence shelter workers and it was really a, a project about working with vicarious trauma you know to look at the caregivers themselves and the often phenomenal stress that they're working with and under and and help provide uh, what one person called a, a culture of wellness and I mean so that was an incredible project and we went from the frontline workers to directors and supervisors and finally executive directors and um it's it was both incredibly touching to me to uh, to hear the stories of these people mostly women but not all women who uh, every day face a kind of suffering that we would all rather have tucked nicely away and not have to face and and who try to deal with it in their personal lives and um not have it overcome them and and define them and uh, whose care for others is so extraordinary and who have maybe not so many tools for caring for themselves. And so that's been an incredible thing, and I'm intrigued to see where that might go as people have a greater understanding of vicarious trauma and the kinds of experiences that you know nurses and relief workers and international refugee workers and all kinds of people are, are going through.
0: Let's just explore that for one moment, Sharon. I, yeah. I've never heard this phrase before—vicarious trauma. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, what do you you mean that people who have worked with other people who have trauma and then experience that trauma themselves?
1: Yeah, the the word f- or the phrase "vicarious trauma" is is exactly that. It's um, it, it's almost, I think, on a continuum of stress. It's not really burnout, but something uh, you could say beyond burnout where your very sense of meaning and and wholeness as a person is affected uh, because of the trauma that you're facing each day. And I remember one of the women in the first program that we did, the first retreat that we did, was saying, you know, I can never tell my partner the things I hear every day, the things I see every day. I can never talk about it. I can never tell anyone, you know, they're too disturbing, they're too horrible. And so, I mean, she was in a place where she was experiencing that kind of isolation and sense of being cut off and, you know, not knowing where to turn, and um, that was even beyond burnout, you know, it was, it was affecting her every day. And so vicarious trauma is is a current term that um, I think makes a lot of sense from the things that we ourselves witness.
0: And Obviously, it makes sense that we can care for ourselves better if we're caregivers, if we have a, a meditation practice and a, and a way to relax and renew. But I'm curious, how do you see meditation helping with the phenomenon of trauma?
1: Well, it's, it's almost like, well, I did it an afternoon um About a year and a half ago, at Walter Reed Army Hospital for nurses, it was an afternoon for nurses because it was National or International Nurses Week, and uh, I have a friend who's a nurse there, and so she uh, invited me to do a program. There were many presenters and programs being given that week for the nurses, and before I did the the afternoon, she gave me a tour of one of the wards there, and of course it was extremely intense and. Provocative and painful, painful to witness, you know, these young people and their families. and um, It was so intense. And then at the end of the tour, she said to me, you know, the nurses who can stay here, and stay here, of course, means continue to serve here, you know, to contribute here. She said, the nurses who can stay here are not the ones who get lost in sorrow. The nurses who can stay here are the ones who can connect to the resiliency of the human spirit. And that's the link, you know, that's what I think, you know, it's not just meditation as a sort of calming tool, Mm -hmm. although it is that, and not just in terms of relaxation, but to connect to something larger that uh, will give us a a profound sense of resiliency, the resiliency of the human spirit so that we're not lost in sorrow. And and that, I think, is the skill um, that I would so much love to, to share.
0: And can you be more explicit about how meditation leads to resiliency, or can lead to resiliency?
1: Mm-hmm. I think it's in a few different ways. You know, one is even just the um, the training of awareness, you know, so we're not so scattered and shattered and, and overcome, and one is in uh, the deepening of mindfulness, so that we can understand the difference between what actually experiencing right now and what we may be adding on to it, you know, like the sort of helpless projection into the future. You know, it's going to be even worse tomorrow and worse the day after or or whatever we might tend to do or um, to notice how if we make a mistake that uh, we can actually begin again and we don't have to heap humiliation on top of the mistake and, you know, so mindfulness is, is really a way of returning us to our experience. Even if the experience is difficult, it's less difficult than if we're adding um, all of these sort of habitual tendencies of projection into the future and comparing to the past and being lost in tunnel vision. I also remember um, sort of in this light uh, doing a presentation once with Zainab Salbi, who's the founder of Women for Women International, uh, which is an organization where people can sign up for a certain amount a month, and sponsor a woman, uh, usually in a war-torn country, you know, Rwanda or Afghanistan or someplace. And and Zenab said in her talk that she had come back from Afghanistan, and and she was going around and describing the program, these different venues, and she uh, kept telling the story of um, this woman who'd been brutalized and raped and had horrible, horrible things happen to her. And and she, Zainab said it was only much later that when she looked at what she had done that she realized, oh, I forgot to say the woman was an attorney. I forgot to say she was accomplished. I forgot to say there were these other parts of her that I I wasn't highlighting. I wasn't elevating. And, and Zainab said for her that that was a lesson in compassion you know it's to try to look at the whole person mm-hmm. um you know in the light as well as the dark and and to have a much more holistic sense of somebody and uh, not to get just mired in the incredible pain you know but to see that in in the biggest context possible so i think that's actually like mindfulness or awareness and um you know and i think also compassion is its own support that when we hit the right note of compassion and, and we're not just lost in sorrow. Um, it connects us to a kind of a really big picture of life and and it, almost like a feeling like we're all in this together. So you don't feel so maybe distinctly responsible for uh, making someone else's suffering go away, but to understand that we are all in this together. And I think it is its own kind of resiliency.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, well very good so uh now in terms of your insights at the edge, your own <laughs> sort of personal process here
1: well i was actually uh, uh when I got a note from one of your producers um for the uh c d of the guided meditations uh-huh and um it came uh the note came from someone in the marketing department who said something like, um, her bio says she's been practicing meditation for like 38 years. That can't possibly be true. <laughs> Can you please check it out? So that brought me to an edge or <laughs> two. And actually it was, it was a very important uh, moment, you know, because I, I find in a funny way, like in my own practice, um, I, I find myself almost like wanting to go back to the beginning. I want to just sit and feel my breath, the very first meditation I ever learned, and uh, and have things being very kind of clean and simple and structured. And um, when I think of it as 38 years, I'm even more surprised than your marketing department, you know? <laughs> I think that can't be, you know? It can't be true. So I'm trying not to hold it in that context, but... Uh, um, really get back to basics and, and for some reason that's very fulfilling for me mm-hmm.
0: what does that mean getting back to basics
1: i think really it's like relying on technique and the simplest of techniques really just like sitting down and feeling my breath or even counting my breath which i haven't done in probably 35 years you know and just taking a few moments now and then in aside from a regular sitting each day but uh Just stopping and feeling my breath and uh not applying you know more complicated metaphysics or a a different set of learning to things and and uh really, just like I just walked in the gates of the monastery in Bgaya you know in India, and have started my practice, and it feels really good.
0: I can imagine somebody thinking, okay, hold on a second. 38 years later, you're going <laughs> back. So what's what's the, you know, frickin' point? Why progress for 38 years to go back to these simple techniques?
1: Well, of course one does I mean, the technique is just the style, you know. The, uh, I, I never think of progress as linear anyway. You know, I think it's like a spiral.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, that we're always kind of circling around, circling around, circling around, and circling around, and... You know, the very first thing I did in that meditation retreat all those years ago, um, in January of 1971, was take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. You know, I sometimes think if I really understood what that meant, it wouldn't be like the beginning, you know? It would be the culmination yeah. of a path. And You know, so I think we always go round and round.
0: It is interesting, even if it's a spiral, the spiral has some movement some directionality mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but that question that I think people can ask which is am I I've been doing this practice am I progressing <laughs> question mark how would I know and I'm, I'm curious how you would respond to that how does someone know
1: oh I think you know uh, I think uh, actually honestly the best way to know is not in terms of what happens in a formal period of practice but in your life you know are you happier Are you able to let go more and um, you know, when your plane is late Or you're, you know, when you find your mind starting to spin out You know, uh, what's the the level of compassion and graciousness With which you can unstick, you know And then and come back to the moment Like I, I noticed in traveling now I have a sort of mantra that I adopt When my mind starts to spin out Like, woo, my plane is late I'm not going to arrive in Portland until Midnight What if, you no know, cabs When Portland Airport is probably really small I just I see that And I kind of laugh And my mantra is Something will happen
0: mm-hmm.
1: You know Something will happen Yeah And and I, I think it's really Throughout one's life And especially I'm, I'm Going back over and over again In my teaching To this idea of beginning again You know That okay I blew it I can start over Yeah I got distracted I can start over I freaked out I can start over um I think the way in which we start over and how quickly we're able to start over really says a lot about progress in the practice.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, Sharon, I'm curious, we're going to track back here in history, which is how you became what, what I refer to you sometimes as the kindness lady.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Well, I always think that's very funny. You know, it's like... Um, it's better than being the anger lady, no, maybe. It's, it's, you, I mean,
0: you can't really argue with being the kindness lady. It's a wonderful no, thing. No,
1: it's a pretty neat thing. Yeah,
0: but I mean, I, here think it's just yeah. <laughs> I mean, here you are. You're a meditation teacher, yes. You know, you, you can tell us a little bit about how you first got attracted to the Dharma. But then I'd love to hear from that point how you became what I'm calling the kindness lady, the teacher of loving kindness, I mean, premier teacher of loving kindness. Uh, well, I, I went to Burma in
1: 1985, and I went specifically to do what are called the four Brahma Viharas. It's loving kindness and compassion and sympathetic joy, which is joy and the happiness of others, and, and equanimity, which is balance of mind. And, and so I went specifically to do those four practices. And when I came back, I, I began teaching them. And this was probably before many people if anybody in the West was really focusing on teaching these these particular practices and Buddhism in general is, you know, an insight practice and it's very very much relies on the flourishing of, of insight in terms of transformation and I think the the general perspective in the West was that the Brahmaviharas Viharas were kind of nice, you know, but not very important maybe and, and there I was teaching them and still teaching them, and still teaching them, and, and, you know, and then I finally wrote the book, Loving Kindness, and so, you know, everything kind of flowed from there, and now, of course, it's very different in terms of how these practices are held, in part, I mean, I, I think about, you know, I'm kind of famous in some circles for, I think it was 90, 1990, 1989, one of those years when I was in India and in Dharamsalit. One of the Mind and Life conferences With the Dalai Lama And I had the chance to ask him a question So I said um, Oh, Your Holiness, what do you think about Self-hatred And he didn't know what I was talking about hmm. And there was all this buzz in the room It was really quite funny He said, are people like that Are they very violent And, and you know, he said Is it some kind of mental disorder It's so like he had no idea hmm. And, um it was really quite fun, you know, because his translators, uh, who were Western, you know, sitting in the room, got very animated and were trying to explain to him how so many Western people heard certain aspects of the Buddhist teaching, like right effort <laughs> strive on with diligence, and how that uh, those words often entered uh, a tremendous pool of self judgment and self condemnation within us. Um, it's quite instructive, you know, so so that was one moment in time. And and now when he spe- his, the Dalai Lama is speaking, you know, I can, uh, almost every single time he'll say something. And then he'll say, of course, if you have a problem with low self-esteem, then this would be seen differently. And, you know, here's this other thing and this other perspective and this other way you should should view it, you know, so I'm very amused by that.
0: Now, Sharon, why would low self-esteem or the phenomenon of self-hatred not be something that would be experienced widely in the Tibetan or Eastern context? Why is that only a Western phenomenon?
1: Well, I think, you know, I don't want to glamorize Asian culture, you know, but um, in terms of that particular issue, I mean, there's a very deep sense that is quite different. If we really discovered who we actually are uh, within the eastern context, certainly within the Buddhist context, we'd find Buddha nature, you know, and so I've heard the Dalai Lama say that, you know, like even in that one, that one conference, he was quite puzzled, and he'd say, but how can you think of yourself like that? You have Buddha nature, you know, so it's this idea that fundamentally we all have a capacity uh, for understanding, for growth, for love, for compassion, and that no one is left out of this vision of possibility. You know, it may be a capacity that's very unrealized and, you know, covered over or buried, but it's there, and so it's a whole different view of who we fundamentally are.
0: But, I mean, there must be sort of parenting patterns or something else that would also be distinct. Do you know what I mean? That would create this, you know, I mean, low self-esteem is is very common, obviously, here in the West. Yeah,
1: Yeah, well, I mean, there probably are, you know, but... um, what I got from him was really just kind of that fundamental belief, uh, which, I mean, it's like we breathe it in, you know, that if we really knew who we were, it would be quite regrettable, you know, and um, somehow debased or uh, guilty, you know, or, or whatever it might be. And and I think it's, it just permeates the culture, actually. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, when you wrote your book on faith, I mean, our discussion about this self evident Buddha nature leads me to that. To the, the, tell me, what was your inspiration to write that?
1: I don't know. It was very funny. Like, um, I was having a conversation with a friend, and he was also a writer. And because loving kindness as a book at that time expressed so much of what had been important for me And what I was dedicating my time to and uh, So this friend said to me Well, what do you do when Your first book expresses your whole life's work And you want to keep writing? And I said to him I guess you look deeper So I began looking deeper And I thought, well, if there's something That's actually more fundamental To my sense of what my past has been than loving kindness, it would be faith? So, I, you know, I decided to write the book.
0: And what do you mean by that word faith?
1: Um, the way that I used it is is sort of in the sense of, um, well, in the classic Buddhist sense, it's um, to place your heart upon, to offer your heart. And the way that I used it was uh, very much in the sense of. Uh, moving from a more abstract sense of possibility, like somebody saying, hey, you have Buddha nature, and you're thinking, oh, that's nice, you know, to uh, moving closer to the center of that possibility so that it's, it's a movement to actualize one's own capacity. And so it's not standing on the sidelines and it's not thinking, oh, you know, great for the Buddha, you know, it's too bad I live in New York or whatever, you know, but it's it's really saying, I want to find out what I can do, what's possible for me. And so it very much has the sense of movement, of stirring.
0: Mm-hmm. What has tested your own
1: faith? Oh, so many things have <laughs> tested my faith. Um,
0: like big ones, big ones.
1: Um, well, I should say, you know, my faith has been tested by different things at different times. I don't think I've ever really... Uh, felt completely torn asunder from, say, the Buddhist teaching. I certainly had very little faith in myself um, in the beginning of my path. and uh, But I had enough, you know, to get to India, so that's all that counts. Um, but I think that that was probably the most strident thing in the beginning was, you know, can I really do this? Is this really possible and then you know there was enough to say yes you know i can do this and what i wrote about in the book was a time some ways into my practice uh when i felt just totally overcome by suffering and pain and uh not physical pain but emotional pain and um i felt like i had nothing in my arsenal like nothing that could really move me along and and help me get out of it and uh, as I tried desperately to sort of strategize and and think my way through to how I can manipulate this experience, it didn't hurt so much and it was actually there that it was it was only going back to the essentials of you know being somewhat kind to myself and and trying to be aware of what's going on and in effect reweaving some strands of connection because I defined and experienced the The opposite of faith is really being a kind of despair, feeling totally cut off, Um, you know, and so I slowly rewove some uh, connectedness back and and felt myself emerge from that period.
0: What was interesting to me, I I read that section of faith on faith and despair, was a couple things. One, that it it happened uh, when you were 20 years into your life as a meditator you know, some idea that people might have that after two decades you would be sort of beyond the potential to be that um, despair-filled about uh-huh. something. I'm curious what you have to say about that.
1: Yeah, it was rather shocking to me. too. <laughs> I didn't think that that was going to happen. But, you know, I think maybe some of it depends on really what one holds as um, one of the ultimate goals of the path. It's like somebody just said to me just the other day that they didn't think um, they could really ever teach anybody because it was so hard for them. You know, their practice was so hard and they had so many struggles. And, and I said, well, that's what makes a good teacher. You know, if you just like sit down and you you know, take a few breaths and you're washed in brilliant white light and you float off into the air, you're not really of any use to anybody, you know, because mm-hmm. most people don't have that experience. And so, you know, if, if ultimately your practice is not just about yourself but is also um, in a sort of larger dedication to others, you know, then maybe 20 or 30 or 40 years into, you know, your practice to have a, a really, really difficult time. is not such a bad thing either.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. In in terms of the benefit it might be able to bring to other people. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Now, the other thing that I thought was curious was that in this chapter you talked about how this despair arose in the midst of a meditation retreat. Yeah. So in the midst of the practice. And the reason that's interesting to me is I think sometimes people have this idea that meditation will be the, you know, all bringing of peace factor and here, mm-hmm. you know, something was sort of archaeologically dug up in your experience that was actually quite painful. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious about that too, your your view of sort of, you know, meditation as a ticket to peace, question mark?
1: <laughs> I think it's better seen as a ticket to freedom, you know. And uh, peace is, well, it depends on how you define peace too, but it comes and goes and uh, certainly pleasure comes and goes and is not necessarily really indicative of anything. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's a, there's a deeper piece from kind of integrating the wholeness of one's being and all these very, very difficult experiences as well. Uh, I would also say very little surprises me anymore, you know, which is not necessarily a bad thing either. Um And and that there's a a kind of humility about a path That I think is also very good And uh, it's also what I meant by a spiral You know, that I I think that It's not so different from the times people have said to me And there have been many Wow, I can't believe I'm still angry about my divorce from 20 years ago I thought I was way over that, you know Mm -hmm. Uh, These things just come up And and they have residue and, And we work with them
0: now, when you say meditation more as a ticket to freedom, uh-huh. what, what do you mean? What 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 kind of freedom is that?
1: I think of it largely in terms of relationship, you know, how we're relating to what our experience is. Um, you know, uh, just because the word peace can be so confusing, it, mm-hmm. it doesn't necessarily mean being placid and serene, but it might mean not being caught up and defined by and identifying with some troubling thing that has come up. As uh, one of my teachers, Tibetan teacher Sukhuni Rinpoche, said, it's not the thoughts that are the problem, it's the glue. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the way we glue ourselves to them and they glue themselves to us and and suddenly we're we're lost in uh, tremendous tunnel vision and, like, our whole sense of who we are and all that will ever be just collapses around this one thing, you know, this terrible feeling or this certain thought. And, um, and yet it's all part of a, in a way, of a passing show, and we don't need to have that collapse. So so I think that's, in a way, that's what progress is.
0: hmm Now, here in 2009, a lot of people are experiencing an increase in the general instability in their lives, mm-hmm. whether that's from economic pressures or just the speed at which their life might be changing. And I'm curious what you have to say about faith in the context of that fear and anxiety that people may be experiencing in an increasing way.
1: Well, I'd like to think that um, as, you know, difficult and, and painful as it. It genuinely is for a lot of people, that we can do what, you know, we each individually can do to reorient our priorities and, and to have a different sense of of what counts, you know. I think of um, Wendell Berry, who said something like, the smallest unit of health is a community, hmm. and just the way sort of the predominant ethic certainly in this country has gone, um, there can be very little sense of community and and such a, a tremendous drive toward acquiring and having and, you know, so I'm not talking about having what one needs, which is very important. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, kind of beyond that, I think w- we have an opportunity to really turn some things around and... Uh, we need faith, not that everything will be perfect or you know that it doesn 't matter what 's going on right now. I think it does matter but but we can have faith in in um, kind of exploring other means of happiness and uh, having a different sense of community and a different sense of interconnection you know that we we can find a a world a vision of the world that is true, which is that we 're all connected and we all Depend on one another and, and sort of start from there,
0: When you quote that Wendell Berry saying about the you know the, the value of a community, the importance of the health of a community, what, what is it that you're envisioning when you, when you say that?
1: Well, I think that somebody um, told me a story about when they were organizing in the last presidential campaign uh, organizing for Barack Obama, and that there were people that were going out and i think it was indiana or something like that and uh, they knocked on someone's door and the guy answered and it was very grumpy you know and he said go away i don't you know i don't vote i'm not interested in voting and, and they went away and then they thought now nah, we're going back you know and they went back and he was just as grumpy and dismissive and said go away you know I'm not interested in voting. And they went back, I don't know how many times, and finally he said, okay, I'm going to tell you the truth. The reason I'm not interested in voting is because I can't read or write.
0: Hmm.
1: And they said, we're going to teach you. And I thought, how many of us know if our neighbors can read or write, you know? Like, do we actually know one another? and Do we pay attention to one another? And Wouldn't it be incredible if we... You know, didn't have to buy, like, a a yet bigger TV or, you know, do whatever we might be accustomed to doing and actually join with one another for everyone's uh, benefit in some way. So I think of that story quite a lot,
0: actually. Mm. Yeah, it's an incredible story. Now, let's say somebody is just feeling a lot of fear about their personal situation, the Mm -hmm. amount of change that's occurring in their life or the economic pressures that they're under. How do you suggest they work with that?
1: Well, first of all, I think everyone needs to keep breathing, you know. I think these are fearful times, you know, it's it's not unreasonable to be quite anxious and and afraid, you know, it's um it's not just, you know, make believe and and it's not, you know, just manufactured by one's mind. There there are fearful times. But when we get caught in that loop then you know again we get a kind of tunnel vision and we can't see what's possible or positive and and we can't uh, be creative you know in that moment of being caught we don't understand if we have options because we don't even see them and so um, really to breathe and to try to ground that energy because uh, another thing about fear is that it's a lot of energy mm-hmm. but it's very wild and and ungrounded and jagged and just going all over the place, you know, and so to do our best to ground that energy so that we can see what's in front of us and and to see what options there are always and, and to understand the movement of life, that that everything is always changing and that we, you know, sometimes we get lost in fear because cause we forget that. Not change isn't only loss, it's also beginnings, you know, and renewals and new doors opening and things like that, so.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, well said Beginning anew
1: Yeah, beginning anew
0: Yeah So Sharon, over the years that I've known you I've heard you tell remarkable stories of the teachers that you've met and the experiences that you've had with various teachers So, I mean, first of all, do you just mean you you seek out teachers? How come you've had so many remarkable experiences (laughs) with so many remarkable (laughs) teachers?
1: No, you know, uh, since except for, like, the very, very early uh, beginnings of my uh, meditation practice in India. No, I've, I haven't sought out teachers. I've just found them.
0: Okay, so tell me about that. What do you mean you've just found them?
1: Well, I mean, sometimes I, w- I would want a teacher, um, you know, in, in a certain sense of the word, like when Saida Upandita's Burmese meditation teacher came, to the insight meditation society in 1984 i was going to sit a three-month retreat with him and i wanted a teacher to guide me through that period of practice and you know we'd he- i'd heard he had a great body of knowledge and that he you know had guided many people through that particular form that particular style of meditation and so we invited him, but I didn't expect a very profound relationship necessarily with him, and yet, from the moment I saw him, I felt, oh, there's really something very strong here. Or when I went to Paris in 1990 or so, and uh, Suryadas, who was an old friend um, I had actually gone to college with, said to me, oh, one of my teachers, Nershal Kenrypache is here, do you want to meet him? And, and I said, sure. And and the moment I walked into the room, I felt this extraordinary connection to him, you know. So that's what I mean by it just sort of happens.
0: It seems, though, that this recognition that you've had with various teachers has been really important to you. Yeah. And what would you say happens in those relationships that has been so critical to your own unfolding
1: I think it's an environment of trust you know where I'm able to go to the edge so to speak <laughs> more you know of my experience um, because I felt I feel like I'm in the the context of of their care and their uh, incredible depth of knowledge and wisdom and and so. You know, uh, the kind of second-guessing or hesitancy or taking half-step instead of three um, doesn't really happen, you know, if I'm working with a strong teacher that I really trust. And, and there's been tremendous love, you know. It's, it's an extraordinary relationship.
0: Mm-hmm. It does seem like the relationship with a Dharma teacher has special love qualities. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about that. It's kind of not like any other relationship exactly. I'm curious what you think about that.
1: Well, you know, in uh, the Tibetan tradition, they say things like you should examine a teacher for like five years before you establish that particular relationship with them, because you have to trust their motivation, you have to feel like they're not teaching for the sake of their ego or for great wealth or something like that, and And if you have examined them Very critically Then uh, that's the point Not before That's the point To enter into that kind of relationship Because they don't see it The relationship is just You know, like learning typing Or something, you know It it is a very uh, intense connection In which you really become Quite vulnerable um, To their motivation You know, you have to feel That they're not Trying to get something from you, you know, but that they're, the relationship is about your own liberation. That's an extraordinary feeling of love, you know, that it's not even an exchange, actually, that this other person is there completely for you. Hmm. Um, it's, it's quite remarkable. Hmm.
0: I know a lot of Sounds True listeners have asked the question of Sounds True. You know, I've I've purchased various. CDs and books that have taught me how to meditate but do I need a teacher to really progress or can I just sort of learn from a book or learn from a CD so what's your response to that
1: I I mean I think the situation in our current time in our culture is that you know maybe many people will not have that kind of teacher-student relationship or not have it very often and, and that's actually okay you know I think that there's a way in which we uh most ultimately you know depend on our own practice anyway um and that there's there's great wisdom and insight, and also I think a sincere meditation practice is like a self correcting process in that we um you know there's times I look back and and I think, well, I was actually way out of balance, I was trying much too hard or I wasn't trying nearly hard enough or something like that. And I question would I have seen that anyway just as I continued on with my practice, and I actually believe I would have. But, you know, having a teacher at those times I think also made that kind of understanding and the need to rebalance very clear, not only in comfortable ways, you know, like uh, you know, a teacher could well say, hey, trying kind of hard, aren't you, you know, I think you could relax in in some manner. Um, You know, so it's not always very comfortable, but I think it it really uh, hastens some understandings. But will we have the understanding anyway? I actually believe we will.
0: Mm -hmm. That's interesting, the idea of a self-correcting mechanism. I mean, that that sounds a little bit like even a kind of faith.
1: Yeah. Well, I think there needs to be some understanding, you know, too, because you can set out... on. a course of meditation say and and have a lot of wrong understanding and then just punish yourself like if you have the thought well I shouldn't have thoughts you know the fact that thoughts are coming up in my mind mean them like a disgrace you know I can't meditate at all this is just terrible then you know it's first of all untrue and second of all a surefire way to really suffer a lot as you sit there and think anyway you know and so um I think there there needs to be a context of, of some genuine understanding of what to expect and what the meditation uh, will bring and will not bring. And, you know, and then I think past that, it really will self-correct.
0: Do you have people come to you and say, Sharon, will you be my teacher? And like, yeah, you I know, throw do. themselves <laughs> down the ground. You know, yes. I do. And uh, how do you respond? How do you assess the situation? Is it, you know, individual?
1: No, I mean, I think the way my life is, it's not really in that old-fashioned sense of of a teacher. Um, It's not something that really happens for me, you know, because I travel and because I I think most of my work is really more uh, introducing new people or, you know, writing or or something like that um, as compared to that kind of um, particular teacher-student relationship some people probably think of me as their teacher you know if, uh, they do many retreats with me or something
0: like that mm-hmm. do you feel a uh, responsibility to people who ask you will you be my teacher and, and you say yeah I mean is there some sense of what you've taken on
1: uh, I don't really ever say yeah
0: <laughs> <so> oh okay <laughs> yeah. what do you say
1: I mean not in that old fashioned sense of the word you know? uh huh I say, well, I don't really do that, or, you know, I'm, you know, I'm traveling a lot. I think if you come to retreats, you know, we'll get to know each other. I'll try to help you with your practice, but I don't really have that kind of relationship with people.
0: hmm Interesting. Okay, just one final question. Uh-huh. I can imagine somebody listening and hearing about beginning anew and thinking... Uh, you know, I like that idea, and I'd like to approach my life with a fresh start. But I just feel terrible about myself for X, Y, Z reason. And what you said about you know asking the Dalai Lama that question about self hatred—well, that's kind of where I am. So, uh-huh. how do I get there? <laughs> I want to begin anew, but I can't.
1: Um, I would say that there's a, a period of maybe reflection and study, and uh looking at things, you know, so for example, in the Buddhist teaching, as I've, you know, I've written about in several books, I think, sometimes I think i got to stop writing about that, um, you know, sometimes there's a distinction that's made between what we would call remorse and what we call guilt, you know, with remorse being a, a genuine pain at having you know, behave badly or, or whatever it might be but an ability to forgive ourselves and move on and and guilt being more kind of lacerating self-hatred where we're just stuck and we go over and over and over whatever it is we did or whatever character traits we you know, think we have that are just um, unchanging and forever and who we really are and, and uh, so I think understanding is a tremendous tool first understand that there's a distinction and that uh, nothing is served by that kind of endless guilt that we just get exhausted and then we have nothing to give to anybody else because we're so mired in that pain and that being able to forgive ourselves and move on doesn't mean that we're perfect and that nothing we did was wrong but that uh, we need to have the energy to be different in the future. And uh, You know, that kind of wisdom or understanding is, is a very important point because we when we don't understand that distinction then there's no impetus to really make a change you know we'll just stay in the guilt forever and so um or to see the tendency of one's mind when we're very angry at ourselves to see that kind of collapse and you know how we may not Remember the 50 other things that also happened today? Just that one, you know, where we were so terrible? Mm-hmm. Something like that. And I think if we set the stage that way, then, then really the rest is just a process of practice. you know. And, and certainly something like loving-kindness practice and loving-kindness toward oneself, I think, would, would have a very big effect.
0: So it's interesting what you're saying is something that you touched on earlier, the idea that insight mm-hmm. can actually really create a change.
1: Yeah, and I think it creates the context for change because if we don't understand that, you know, we're just going round and round and round, a pattern that doesn't serve us and doesn't serve others, then, uh, you know, we have, we have no ability to see clear. And I think that's the hardest part sometimes is, is to understand, well, this is, this is just destructive. You know, I, I need to go through some process to not be so stuck here. But once we have that understanding, then then we can undertake the process.
0: Mm-hmm. Very good. Well, thank you, Sharon. It's been great to talk to you.
1: Thank you. It's great to talk to you.
0: Yeah, very well. Thank you. Okay. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. This program has been brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. For those seeking genuine transformation, SoundsTrue.com is your trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. Please visit us at SoundsTrue.com and experience our award-winning audio programs for yourself. Programs that embrace the world's major spiritual traditions, as well as the arts and humanities, embodied by the leading authors, teachers, and visionary artists of our time. With every title, we strive to preserve the essential living wisdom of the author, artist, or spiritual teacher. Not only will you receive information, but you will receive the essential quality of a wisdom transmission between a teacher and a student. Many Voices, One Journey. Soundstrue.com